we're talking about what will heaven be like. And tonight, I'm excited because we're finally getting to the part where we're going to be talking about our eternal time in heaven. The last three talks we've done have been very theological because we've been talking about what happens immediately after death. We've been talking about the judgments. We've been talking about the intermediate heaven and the intermediate hell. We've been talking about all the things that happen basically from the time of death till the time we get to the eternal heaven and the eternal earth. And what makes me excited is tonight we're finally going to get to talk about the eternal heaven and the eternal hell, which I'm going to refer to the eternal heaven, by the way, as the new earth, because it is on earth. So let's go to the next slide for a second. Okay, for those of us who remember where we are, you know, we've been walking through a timeline, but tonight we're going to look very carefully at the creation of the new earth and what it's going to be like. And when we pick up our series in a couple weeks, we're going to spend three or four weeks diving into some very detailed questions about what it's going to be like to live on the new earth. And I'm going to be throwing out those questions tonight to pique your interest. And I want you to think about them, kind of come up with your answers, and then see when we come back and actually go through these questions whether your answers match what we're going to look at the text. And of course, we use a little bit of healthy speculation uh, to kind of maybe glean some answers, okay? So in the timeline now, we're past death. We're past the initial intermediate heaven and the intermediate hell. We're past the judgment of faith. We've walked through the judgment of works. And now, basically, we get to that point in Revelation where we hear the verses that say that a new earth will be our future home. Here's some verses to show you that it's not Revelation alone that has this concept. Look at Isaiah 65, 17. It says, Behold, I will create new heaven and a new earth. Look at Isaiah 66, 22. And these are prophecies of Isaiah from the Old Testament that match very closely what we read in Revelation. It's almost like God confirms it again in Revelation. Isaiah 66, 22. As the new heavens and the new earth that I will make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and your descendants endure. Okay, 2 Peter 3.13 In keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And of course, the famous passage that we've looked at in Revelation 21.1, this is John seeing the vision of the future. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The exciting news is that while we have our intermediate heaven in heaven, we're waiting until the final things happen. Once all the final judgments happen, God's going to make a new earth, and that's where we're going to live. He comes down on this earth, right? And he's going to dwell with us. The question a lot of people ask is, does that mean that God's going to destroy this earth? And I want to get our vocabulary straight because it's going to become very important to a lot of the questions we ask about ourselves. We put new kind of in quotations, because it doesn't necessarily mean that the old one is scrapped away, okay? If you look at the biblical vocabulary that's used to describe new earth, and actually anything that's new, here's some of the words that you might want to use. I threw them up on the screen. Some of them are our reconcile, restore, recover, return, renew, regenerate, resurrect. Notice all of them imply kind of a remaking, a refashioning. In fact, every word I'm using starts with the word, or starts with a prefix, re, to do again. All right. Now, it doesn't mean, though, completely that we're just going to obliterate the earth. 
obliterate the cosmos and start over. It means that God's going to actually take what's already there and remove the curse of sin and remake it. And this comes very important when people ask questions, as you'll see in a few minutes. Well, what will our bodies be like? What will we be like? Are we going to be this brand new start over? Or are we going to somehow, is there some continuity between the old and the new? The continuity comes because there are some good things that God will use as he remakes and recreates. There are verses in the Bible, to be fair, that sound like the earth will be destroyed. But if you read them carefully, it really is a temporary issue. So if you want to know the answer to the question, there are some verses, for example, that say that everything will be laid bare. Okay, So it sounds like everything's going to be wiped out. But really, what if you look at the context and what the meaning behind it, it sounds like temporarily some things will be wiped out, but then God will remake it. I guess the best way to do it is, let me show you, as we walk through this, how this is going to work, and it might answer that question that you have. Look at the question on the screen. It says, why is redemption so essential to God's plan? Remember, Jesus in Revelation says, behold, I make all things new. Okay? He says, behold, I make all things new. Why is this redemption so important? Let's answer that. Go to the next slide if you could. You see, the idea is God has won the victory over Satan in the final things. But we need to understand what is the result of winning the victory. Here are a couple quotes just thrown out from a couple theologians to give you an idea of what it's going to mean to lift the curse of sin and to actually have his victory. Here's one quote. Since one of the results of sin has been death, the promised victory must somehow involve the removal of death. Another result of sin has been banishment from our first parents from the Garden of Eden. And they were supposed to rule there with God. So it would seem that the victory should also mean man's restoration to some kind of regained paradise from which he could once again properly and sinlessly rule the earth. Notice what's happening is God is removing sin out of the equation and trying to put things back the way they should have been. Here's another way to look at it. There's a quote from Randy Alcorn who wrote the book that we're kind of walking through. God doesn't throw away his handiwork and start from scratch. Instead, he uses the same canvas to repair and make more beautiful the painting marred by the vandal. The vandal doesn't get the satisfaction of destroying his rival's masterpiece. On the contrary, God makes an even greater masterpiece out of what his enemy sought to destroy. That's how God achieves his ultimate victory. He doesn't let Satan screw this world up so badly that Satan can even claim a partial victory by saying, aha, I at least made you start over. God doesn't even let him have that victory. He says, I will take what you screwed up and make a better masterpiece out of it. And that's how God's ultimate victory never affords Satan any opportunity once he is ultimately victorious. This is another theologian saying, if God would have to annihilate the present cosmos, Satan would have won a great victory. Satan would have succeeded in so devastatingly corrupting the present cosmos and the present earth that God could do nothing with it but blot it totally out of existence. But Satan did not win such a victory. On the contrary, Satan has been decisively defeated. God will reveal the full dimensions of that defeat when he shall renew the very earth on which Satan deceived mankind 
and finally banish from it all the results of Satan's evil machination. That's how clever and how forward-thinking God is, that he's going to let Satan think he can do anything he wants, and in the end, God's going to take away even the satisfaction that Satan might have had of screwing up this world even temporarily and say, I'm going to take what you tried to screw up and make something even better out of it. Okay? And now we can start to appreciate why God isn't going to just throw the old one away and start over completely new. That's why he's going to renew, remake, reconcile, resurrect, because he wants the ultimate victory to remain his. And in that respect, Satan's action in this world is to cause sin, and sin has, sin has repercussions and consequences outside of just our souls. I mean, if you look at the reason we have death, it's because of sin. So sin actually has physical consequences throughout the world. And yes, some could argue, when you said the word smog, like, uh, there's some people who actually argue that because we're sinful and fallen people, we pollute the earth that God gave us to take charge over, and that's why we have this world that's getting worse and worse and global warming and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, okay? That if we didn't have the curse of sin, the earth would still be pure and perfect and none of that would ever happen. Okay, I mean, I, I hear that argument and I see what it's about, but that's why I believe that Satan is doing more than just trying to rob us of our salvation, which is his first and primary goal. But for those that he can't do that to, I think he's also trying to just screw up anything he can in God's creation. And his ultimate trick would be to get God to just get so frustrated that he would start over. And God's not going to give him that satisfaction of even saying I, that even you had a temporary victory, that I had to start over with my creation, even though God could do it in a second. He's, I'm not going to even give you that. So the point here really is to get the right attitude and the right vocabulary about our new home. You know, the surface of the earth might be wiped away. Maybe everything that's on it might be wiped away. But God is not just going to take the whole cosmos and just go out, start something new, and then everybody comes down from heaven. He's actually going to remake it the way he remakes us. And I think that's the beauty of this point. Not so much that the earth is... I mean, you guys probably could care less whether it's a new earth or an old earth or a remade earth because you're like, who cares? But here is the point that I think we should care about. God's attitude towards his creation includes us. It shows us that he could have gotten rid of us, and he chose not to do that. He chose to redeem and reconcile and resurrect us. So when we focus so much on what the new earth is going to be, I think some people think, oh, that's kind of a nice point. But I think if you then take it to the next level and realize that the way he does that with the earth, with the cosmos, with all of his creation, is the same way that he does it to you and me. He never never ever intended to say you know what it's over i'm starting over i could just scrap this whole thing and start over what he's saying is no as much as it's going to pain me to do this and go the distance i need to go to save these people through my plan and die on the cross and do all these things fine because i'm not starting over i'm not giving satan the satisfaction of even taking one person that i could bring back if they believed in me Okay, so I think that is the ultimate point I think that I draw from this. Nice to know that the earth will be recreated, but I think it's nicer to know that God cares so much that he's not going to start over with us either. You know, and that whole resurrection concept follows through. All right, let's go to the next slide. Life on new earth. We're going to begin talking about it right now. Life on new earth begins with a resurrected body. 
Remember that we talked about in the intermediate heaven, you might have a physical body while you're in heaven. You might or you might not. We debated that last week at length. But either way, we know that your actual body that you're going to live forever in heaven with on the new earth is going to be resurrected at the very end. You will rejoin with your spirit and you will live on the new earth in a resurrected body. Let's get to know a little bit about our new body. Let's start with scripture. It's a good place to start. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 14. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Pretty strong statement by Paul writing to the church at Corinth who was starting to spread a heresy that there was no resurrection of the body and that we just floated around as spirits. And he was saying, absolutely not. Get this down, you will be in a resurrected body. He goes on and says, but someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish, he responds. What you sow does not come to life un unless it dies. Think about it. He's talking about a seed germinating. You put it in the ground, changes form, comes back to life. He's saying the same thing will happen to our bodies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. So... It will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Very direct words. No interpretation needed. We're going to have imperishable bodies, strong, powerful, and you could draw from that maybe perfect in some respect. Notice also he says, in using the analogy of the seed, that and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. What he's trying to lead into that we're going to talk about is, it's not random what you put into the ground and what you get. You plant wheat seeds, you get wheat plant, right? Okay, you plant like whatever kind of flower seeds, you're going to get that kind of flower. And so it is with our bodies. You plant Jolene, you're going to get Jolene imperishable, powerful, okay, glorious, but it's still going to be what you planted. The reason for that is because a lot of people are going to ask, and we're going to tackle these questions, do we all look the same? You know, are we all like these models? You know, what do we look like in the imperishable body, okay? Yeah, do you get a catalog that says, you know, choose your hair color, your eye color, you know, I mean, you're going to have this body forever, so choose wisely, all right? No refunds after 10 days, all right? And it comes back with a receipt, and if you wear it, it's out, all right? I can already see that the questions we're going to ask tonight are really going to pique your guys' interest, but we're, this is scriptural. It's trying to point out these points to you. We are going to have new bodies. They are going to be much stronger, better, glorious, perfect, imperishable, whatever verbs you want to use or, or, or descriptions, adjectives, but also that they are going to resemble what it is we already sowed. Um, let's go to the next slide. Let's at least answer one question you guys want to know. Here's one question everybody's asking. Do we get new bodies? Okay, now, I just finished talking about the new earth, so you should already kind of know where I'm leading with new bodies. 
we're talking about resurrected, restored bodies. There's some relationship, like we just looked at in Corinthians, between what you sow and what comes back, okay? Remember also, we have the example of Jesus. When Jesus came back, some people will point out, well, they didn't recognize him at first, but at other times, they did recognize him after a while. There was some relationship between his resurrected form okay, and who he was before. Remember, he showed people the nails, all right? He said, look, touch, it's me. There were other times where it seems that the Gospels are trying to tell us that it wasn't so much that they didn't recognize him because he was a different form, but they were kept from recognizing him. Okay, On the road to Emmaus, when he's walking with the two and he's teaching, the verse actually says their eyes were opened. Okay, It's almost like their eyes were closed so they could listen to what he was saying and hear his words. And then when their eyes are open, they suddenly recognize who it is. It's almost like their eyes were kept from knowing it. Not that they couldn't have known it any other way. All right. So again, there's some relationship. It seems like here's a here's something that the church has adopted. Okay. This is from the Westminster Larger Catechism. I love citing things like that. This makes me sound like we're in seminary. This is written in 1647, but it's a long-held view of the church. The same self bodies of the dead, which were laid in the grave, being then again united to their souls forever, shall be raised up by the power of Christ. And they use the word same self bodies, okay? Here's something from the Westminster Confession, probably the greatest confession of the church that we've relied on for many, many years to keep us doctrinally sound as a unified body. All of the dead shall be raised up with the same self bodies and none other. What they're indicating to us is that there is a relationship between our bodies that we lived in in this life and the ones that will be resurrected. It's not like somebody goes, all right, same soul, different body. It's the same body. I, I don't have any position on cremation. I don't know if there's a, if there's a verse, for example, that talks about not being cremated. But, I, but, I'll put, but, but people, people talk about cremation, and they feel like, well, if I'm cremated, then I can't be resurrected. It's like, well, if you're cremated in the 20th century in your ashes, or you were buried in like, you know, the year 200, and now you're basically dust, what's the difference? I mean, you know, God's got just as hard of a job to do to put your molecules back together somehow and resurrect you. But I think if anybody could figure out how to put your molecules back together and which ones belong to you and which ones belong to the plant that you were lying next to, it's probably God. You know, so, so I, I really do think that the question of that we rot and turn to dust and that we're carried all over the place, I mean, we know that ultimately our molecules are somewhere and God will be able to resurrect our body and put it back together, you know. Well, it's not like going to be in Thriller where everybody's just like ripping open their grave and coming out like doo 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 doo. It's not. It's not like exactly like that. All right. <laughs> you know, like, it's not exactly like that. Okay. But the idea is, our bodies, the way God made Adam and Eve out of the dust, it's still God's ability to do it. He can do that. So let's get let's 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 get on this track. We know that we're going to have these resurrected bodies. Look at the last point here. This is from Philippians 3:20 to 21. For those who don't like quoting the catechisms of some Aryan uh, waspy guys, the Lord Jesus Christ will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. So there, direct, direct scriptural analogy. You want to know what it's going to be like? Look at Christ's body. Okay. Now, I always tell you, put an asterisk next to that because we know that Christ can do things that we can't do. Christ is God. 
okay? But I do believe that his bodily resurrection on earth provided us with a lot of examples of what our resurrected bodies might be like. All right, we've talked about this in the past. He ate, he walked, he slept, he talked, he acted normally after he was resurrected when he spent time with the disciples. He didn't do a lot of weird stuff, but again, he did walk through a wall, he did disappear. So we don't know to the degree that we're going to be like him. We probably have to reserve some things for the fact that he is God and at the same time take enough away that we can say, all right, but it seems like here's Philippians telling us that our bodies will be transformed to be like his. So life on the new earth begins with a resurrected body. Next slide, Alicia. How far-reaching is the resurrection? What this question gets to is if the earth is going to be renewed and resurrected, we know that Christ has been resurrected, we know that we're going to be resurrected. We even know that at the judgment of works, the deeds that we've done on earth will be presented to Jesus and we'll make an account for what we did. And he'll reward us based on what we did on earth. If all of those things survive, the question is, could anything else survive? Consider this. Is it possible, for example, that certain features of the earth might survive? Like maybe in the new earth that's recreated by God, is it possible that the Grand Canyon might still be there? Just a question to think about. Is it possible, for example, that some of the more beautiful islands in the West Indies or maybe Tahiti is still there the same way? Is it, is it possible, for example, that somewhere that you know that you like to go might still be on the new earth? I'm going to suggest to you that it's very possible, but we'll talk more about it in coming weeks. But here's something else I want you to consider in the resurrection. Because remember, all the resurrection is doing is removing the curse, remaking it the way it should have been. But if our deeds on earth, for example, survive enough for us to account to Jesus and receive rewards in heaven, is it possible that something else may survive, like a song, a hymn, a story, maybe somebody's artwork, maybe the Bible? Now, this is the part where I always say we're speculating because there's no biblical support for this. But think about it from this way. There are lots of descriptions in Revelation about what they're doing, and some of them seem to imply that there's something left over of the world, but it's also possible that nothing will be left over. Okay? But if God can remake the earth and not scrap it and start over, if he's going to remake us and not scrap us and start over, is it possible just think about it. I don't even want you to you just let your mind wander on because we're going to be addressing similar questions in coming weeks. Is it possible that something that you did here on earth might also survive and not be annihilated by God because he thinks it's good? Okay? I can think of some songs and some worship songs that are really just like about the highest forms of worship I've ever heard. Maybe God will say, why start over? I'm going to redeem even that and bring it into heaven. He might also say, hey, what I got is so much better than that. You haven't heard music until you've heard what I've got. It's just as healthy speculation for us to think, how far does it go? I think that we've been trained in the church to regard all things in this world as material and evil. We talked about the Christoplatonic view, and it's influenced us so much that we've gotten to the point where we believe that everything in this earth will burn automatically. In fact, if you ask most people what will happen to the earth, they'll tell you it will be destroyed. People are looking forward to the destruction of Earth as opposed to the recreation of Earth, okay? We, in our minds, have, have spent so long trying to get people not to be material, to not love the world, you know what I mean? 
so we've overcompensated in our theology. Part of the reason is because we never talk about heaven. We only talk about it in terms of on this side of life, don't love the world too much, don't be invested too much. And then we tell people a good reason is because it's not going to last. It's all going to burn. It's all going to be destroyed. Can't take anything with you. I mean, the only thing you can take with you is your friends. So evangelize them, leave everything behind. Okay, I'm not saying that's not biblical. There actually might be some biblical support for that, but I think there's been an overemphasis on how much it will be burned, destroyed, and we've made evil what God might not think is evil. I mean, if you think, wait a minute, there's some worship songs that are sung in this church that I think God in heaven is listening to and thinking, that's the kind of music I'd like to hear. You know what I mean? I can't think of him looking down going, that's a man-made evil song, and I can't wait for that song to burn. You know what I mean? Like, I'm glad that that song, maybe some of Amy Grant's music, but other than that, like, you know what I mean? Like, maybe everything else, he'll be like, you know what, that song is so cool, I love that, I love the heart that wrote it, I love the, the, the tenderness that's in that song, I love the emotion that person had, I love what they said to me. I mean, it's a love song to Jesus. But what about a poem? What about a painting? What about a painting? What about these paintings that we put up in our church? Wait, wait, wait. What about the paintings we have hanging in our church here where we won't even put up a picture of Jesus, but we have a picture of these guys, you know? Let me, let me tell you this. There's, there's some Christian fiction, by the way. This is fiction. I'm going to underline the word fiction. There's Christian, Christian fiction where the, the protagonist in the story is doing carpentry the way Jesus did, and he's making this piece, and he's dedicating it to Jesus. And it's a, it's, a, it's a throne, type of a chair type throne. And he's like, in his mind as he's carving this life work of his, he's dreaming that someday Jesus would sit in this throne. Now this is Christian fiction, okay? And when that person dies and he goes into heaven and he inherits his house in heaven, you know, whatever it is going to live in, inside the chair is there waiting for him. Now, it's, it's, it's a beautiful concept. I'm not saying it's biblical. I'm not saying it's not. All I'm saying to you is let your mind stretch for a moment, and consider first the problem that we have in the church, which is that we've made the world too evil sometimes when it comes to material. We've made it too material, and we would never, before we even had this series, consider that, you know, a lot of us wouldn't even thought we had bodies in heaven. A lot of us were thinking that all we did was sing all the time, and now as we're starting to liberate ourselves from the thoughts and see what the scripture actually says we're going to do, what I'm encouraging you to do is just consider and it might go even a step further than we're even willing to grasp at this moment and think, maybe some of the music we write, maybe some of the poetry. Now, does that mean your car is going to be waiting for you? Probably not, okay? What I'm saying is, it's possible, okay? Just a possibility. I'm sure that when some of the people that wrote, like, when Beethoven or Bach wrote some of the music that they dedicated to God, that even as humans, we're still not able to surpass in its beauty. Um, that God himself either gave them the talents to do it and was pleased with their work or enjoyed the fact that they dedicated their life's work to God, okay, why would we assume, I'm not saying that it's true, but let's not assume that God's going to wipe that away too, just go, hey, you know what, it's over, I don't like it anymore because now we're in the new earth and I got something better. I'm just saying, let's just open up our minds to the possibility that God may say, I love that piece of work that you gave to me and I want it to be in heaven as well, even though there'll be probably something much better, but it's still going to be there. Just a possibility, okay? All right, there you go. You got the example of the uh, of the of the little five-year-old sketches that you did at five-year-old. You know, it, your mom puts on the refrigerator for like 35 years. It embarrasses you every time a girlfriend comes over. Exactly. Right.
But why? Because she just loved the fact that you did it. You know, I mean, I go into people's offices all the time, big executives who have like these little hands from their kids on the plaster on the wall. You know, and I'm just like, I mean, this guy's got, you know, big brass and glass office downtown, huge windows and a little plaster thing with a little kid's hands. Why? Because their kid gave it to him. I mean, this is the greatest, most precious artwork in the world. It, it, you know, is our father in heaven any different? I'm sure he's different than, you know, just speculation. Let's go to the next slide. Here's just a couple things to, to, uh, to pique your interest. Will the new earth seem familiar to us? Here's a couple quotes. We will be with people we love and will love no one more than Jesus who purchased with his own blood not only our lives but our future home as well. Because we already lived on this earth, we'll have a sense of coming home and the new earth will strike us as very familiar. Think about this, Randy Alcorn says. A good carpenter envisions what he wants to build. He plans and designs. Then he does his work carefully and skillfully, fashioning it to exact specifications. He takes pride in the work he's done and delights in showing it to others. And when he makes something for his bride or his children, he takes special care and delight. My general take after reading a lot more chapters on this subject, there'll probably be some familiar features on earth. I don't think God's going to throw out. Remember, he created it in the first place. He thought these things were beautiful to begin with. He might keep some of the features. He might even make it even greater than what we could ever imagine. But the point is, you know, we just don't know, but we know it's going to be good and it's going to be exciting. Let's go to the next slide, Alicia. Here's another question, switching gears just a little bit. What are we going to be doing on Earth? Okay. Now, I'll tell you that the three probably weeks we spend on this subject when I get back, we're going to talk a lot about what we're going to do on Earth. And tonight I'm going to throw out the questions to kind of pique your interest. But here's one that we start with because I want to just kind of show you a little bit more about this theology of recreation and renewal, that it doesn't throw out everything we know. Will we rule with Christ? Romans 8, 16 and 17 says, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Co-heirs. If indeed we share in His sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory. That means we inherit the same types of things that Jesus inherits, okay? the first clue, but I'm going to throw you some passages, that we are going to actually rule on the new earth. Now, who would we rule? Well, we'll rule over angels. we rule over the earth. We're going to actually rule over other people. You know, consider this for a second. Here's 1 Corinthians 6, 2-3. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And do you not know that we will judge the angels? When it says that we will have the ability to be co-heirs, we will rule and we will rule not only over the angels and the earth the way we're supposed to originally in the garden. If you go back, we were supposed to have dominion over the animals. We will actually, in this heaven, judge the angels, have dominion over the world, and very probably over other people. Now, I know the first thing that comes to mind when you hear that is like, wait a minute, you mean somebody's going to be my boss? Or I'm going to be somebody else's boss? Like, isn't everybody equal on the new earth? Of course, that's the way we want it to be. This is kind of like the discussion we had when we discovered that there were rewards in heaven. Everybody's like, wait, you mean people get different levels of stuff in heaven? They get different rewards? Yes. And guess what? There's also going to be a hierarchy in heaven, not in the way you're thinking of a hierarchy, because you're thinking of a sinful hierarchy. You're thinking of a sinful hierarchy where somebody's better than somebody, somebody gets more than somebody. Think of a hierarchy where it's just an efficient, orderly way to rule and have dominion over the universe the way it was supposed to be 
with no sin, no envy, no jealousy, no strife, no conflict. Just you're so happy that the guy above you is your boss. Smiles all day. And then he's got a boss and a boss's boss and a boss's boss and you're a boss. And everybody's a boss. And everybody's just hanging out at the boss's convention. Okay? Just complete, no griping at the water cooler boss festival. Okay? All right? No sin in heaven. Some people will say, I don't want to rule. Like, I'm not made to rule. Other people will say, like, I don't like the idea of anybody ruling over me. And then the idea is like, this sounds sinful to have rulers and bosses and dominions. That sounds like power struggles, right? But it's God's idea because he tells us, I want you to rule. All right, let me, let me just show you, by the way. First, let me make that case for you. Go to the next slide if you could, Alicia. Let me just show you that he does want us to rule, by the way, just so you don't think I'm making this up. Matthew 5, 5. You guys all know this verse because you've never understood it. It says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. When have you seen a meek person ever inheriting the earth? Besides, what earth would there be to inherit? And the point being, yes, God is going to bless the meek, but the earth that they're going to inherit, if you really want to take the principle to its ultimate eternal truth, is this one, the new earth. Not the one that we're all living in today that's messed up. Because those meek never seem to quite assemble enough muster, whatever it needs to actually rule this world. It seems like everybody's stepping all over them. And Jesus says to them, blessed are you who are meek, for you will inherit the earth. What earth? The new earth. You see that they're going to inherit the earth. It's going to be an eternal earth. They're going to be theirs. Okay? God's hierarchy. Remember, even when he says, when you go to a banquet, where do you sit? Sit in the humble seat, right? And then God will lift you up and move you over to the good seat, right? He's giving us examples of how to live life. Yes, on this earth, by the way, those parables aren't inapplicable to our life here. But God's truth is eternal. It means it's applicable to our eternal life as well. Look at Luke 22, 29 and 30. Jesus said to the disciples, You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one to me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Okay? Now, will the disciples probably have a higher level of judgment and power than the rest of us? Probably. Here's a general one, just because you want one. Matthew 25, 23. The master will say, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now let me put that verse in context because this is the one that I think seals the deal on this one. This is the parable about Jesus and the talents when he says to people, the kingdom of God will be like this. And he says it will be like a master who goes away. He gives to his people different you know, amounts of talents, right? One guy buries it. The other guy makes a good amount. The other guy makes a lot of amount. Okay? And he's saying to the one who made a lot, well done, good and faithful servant. He says when the master returns, that's what you'll hear. Now what is the master returning? It's the end of time. He's coming back and he's saying, because you were faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Much what? If the end of the world is over, he's got nothing to be set over. What Christ is saying is, because you were faithful over what I gave you on earth, I will set you over much as we go into heaven. All right? And that's a direct parallel to how the parable works, because the master represents Jesus leaving the earth and then coming at the end. And when he says to him, I give you, I'll set you over much, there's no other place for us to assume it's going to be except in the future because that signifies the end of the world when Jesus comes back. So he's making it clear to us in the parable of the talents even. 
Now, let me be clear about this. Meekness is not the only way that we're going to get rewards in heaven. Meekness is not the only way that we're going to rule over others. It's just that Jesus identified meekness when he said inherit the earth. So I think it's a pretty strong value to adopt if you're looking to kind of up the ante a little bit. But it also seems in the parable of the talents that people who use what they've been given for kingdom purposes in this life, it's kind of like a little test run. If you could do with what I gave you in this life and produce great results for the kingdom, then you've proven yourself a good and faithful servant, and I will put you over much in the next life. Okay? These are Jesus' words. I don't like them. <laughs> I want an equal heaven. I want everybody in the same plane, no rewards, no rulers, but it's not my heaven. God is the one that says, I come, my reward is in my hand, is what he says in Revelation. Okay? In Matthew, he says that when I come from the sky, I will reward each of you according to what you've done. So the rewards are his idea, and so is the ruling. It's the way he meant it to be originally. He wanted us to have societies, governments, dominion over things. We screwed it up. We still have those things, by the way, but they're cursed by sin and power struggles and jealousy and envy and personal gain. And Jesus is asking you tonight, imagine taking all those things away and then you ruling over parts of the world. If we're going to judge angels, is there any reason why we couldn't really rule over other people? When the word, the verb tense of judge, when it says you will judge the angels, you will judge, okay, talks about that. It implies a continuous judging, not a you will have a judgment over. It means that you will sit in judgment over them continuously. All right, let's go to the next slide. Let's get down to some specifics. Will the new earth be a return back to Eden? Okay, we're going to start answering questions now. Will the new earth be a return back to Eden? I think the answer is no. I don't think we're going backwards and getting rid of everything that mankind has ever created. Okay, there is going to, we're going to talk about that in the future, but just so you know, we'll make the case that it's not going to be just a restart where we're back like Tarzan and Jane in the jungle. All right? We know that we've talked about there will be nature on this earth, and maybe it will resemble a little bit of what we already know. There will be places on earth that are resurrected and maybe they'll even be retained in the new earth. Maybe there will be some familiarity. Maybe you really will be able to see the Grand Canyon. I don't know. But no reason to believe that when God created it the first time, he created it for some other reason other than he just wanted to. Maybe he'll want to do it again. Here's a question that everybody asks that we should go into because Angela alluded to something about God's specific instructions earlier about the temple. We know that the new Jerusalem comes out of the sky, right? That's God's city and it comes on earth, okay? What will the new Jerusalem be like? There is some very specific information in the Bible about what the new Jerusalem will be like, okay? In fact, in Revelation, an angel shows John the measurements of the new Jerusalem. And it's measured in Revelation as 12,000 stadia, which translated to modern measurements roughly is 1400 miles cubed that would cover from the appalachian mountains to the edge of california the border okay it would cover from canada to mexico 
and then that high, if it's really a Q. But that's what the revelation says. Now, before, <laughs> before we go into it, is it possible that in this part of Revelation, it's just trying to indicate a very big place? Yes. Is it literally going to be a cube? I don't know. Could the cube represent the highest skyscrapers in the city? Possible. The point, though, is it's going to be a very, very big city. Down the middle of the streets is going to run the river of life. On either side of the streets is the tree of life is going to reappear in heaven. There it is. We can eat from it any time we want, sustaining life forever. There's some beautiful descriptions of what this new Jerusalem is going to be like. The gates will never close. Why? Because there will be no more enemies of God ever. They'll always be open. We will be citizens of heaven. We can visit the new Jerusalem anytime we want. We might live there. We might not. I don't know. But we will all be citizens of heaven, and this is where God will dwell. Okay, in this awesome, awesome city that seems like it could just support. I mean, can you imagine if it was just a cube and it just had floors of space? I mean, that would be like billions of people could fit in that space. Okay, so definitely room in heaven for all the people. They can all live in the city if they want to, but I don't know if that's what our lot is going to be. We just know that that city is going to be there as awesome as it's going to be. We'll all be citizens of the New Jerusalem, free to go there anytime we want, free to have an audience with God anytime we want. And last question on here that we're just going to look at real fast is a question that people ask is, in this New Jerusalem, in this New Earth, will we experience time? And the answer, I think, if you look at a lot of the authorities is yes. And I have a whole section for the people who are doubting the time issue. A lot of people read or have read verses that say there is no time in heaven, but that's actually a mistranslation from the King James Bible. It didn't translate correctly. The better translation is that there will be no waiting for God's judgment and God's time, not that there will be no time. In fact, we know that in other places in Revelation it says that time stood still for like half an hour. They measure it in heaven. Well, I mean, that probably seems to imply some sort of time, but if you're one of those people who really wants to hear about time, I'll have you read some stuff first, then then we can debate it. And I guess that's just a difference that we have to wrap our arms around. There is a difference between eternity and infinity. There is a difference. There's just like a difference about we'll go to heaven and be there eternally, but we won't become gods. We won't know everything. Okay. So just because we enter into the eternal realm doesn't change our nature. It doesn't change the fact that there is time either. Okay. All right, so those are some basic things about heaven. Go to the next slide if you could, Alicia. I want to look ahead for a second. All right, let me, can, I, can I caution you for a second? Let me warn you. The questions we're about to cover in the next five minutes, which I'm hoping to do in five minutes, are going to pique more questions out of you than are possible for us to tackle in 20 weeks. So I'm going to ask you a favor. Your question we're going to answer in about a week. Okay? We are going to answer the following questions in three weeks' time, if I can do it, when we come back. The reason I'm putting these on the board is not to get you to raise your hand, put your hands down. It's because I want you to know what we're going to cover and to show you that I think we've got some awesome questions to answer in the coming weeks. It's to pique your interest so that when we get back from this trip, you guys will definitely want to hear the answers to these things. And here are some of the questions that I'm going to be answering for you. Not maybe satisfactorily to any of you people, but at least we're going to attempt to answer them. Will the new earth have a sun and a moon? Will there be an ocean? 
or a C, what about seasons and weather? Will we have emotions? Will we have desires? Will we maintain our identities? Will we all be beautiful? Okay, here's what I want to know. Can we gain weight in heaven? All right, because going to all those feasts sounds like it would be so good. I mean, for me, the definition of heaven is like an eternal buffet with no weight gain, all right? This could be heaven, you know? Will our bodies have new abilities? Will our bodies be perfect? Will we wear clothes? Will we age in heaven? And by the way, another question that was asked last week, what age will we be in heaven? Not just will we age, but what age will we be? If you die as a six-month-old, are you a baby in heaven? Or are you going to be some other age in heaven? When your body is resurrected, is it resurrected as a baby, or do you have a different body that's resurrected? Okay, We're going to answer that. Will we eat and drink? Will we eat meat? Will we drink coffee in heaven? Here's another question that you guys have already asked. Will we have free will in heaven? Can we be tempted in heaven? Can we sin? Will we know everything? What about will we be able to learn everything if we study hard enough? Are there books in heaven? If so, will they all be God's books or will they be some that have a different point of view? Will what was written on earth survive? Will we remember the earth? Will we recognize each other? Will we work? Will we sleep? Will we have our own homes? Can we invite guests into our homes? Will we want to hang out with anyone other than Christ? Will there be marriages and family? Will we have sex? Will we pursue and develop relationships? Will we date? Here's something to think about. Will we ever disagree? Will there be private ownership? Will we have any privacy? Will we have ethnic and national identities? What languages will we speak in heaven? Will there be animals in heaven? Will we see our pets again? Will we be able to talk to the animals? What about extinct animals? Will they be in heaven? Will our life's work continue in heaven or are we going to be reassigned? Will we express our creativity? Will culture advance in heaven? Will we sing, dance, write, paint, tell stories, tell jokes, laugh, put on dramas, watch movies, play video games? Will there be sports? If we do have sports, will there be competition? Will there actually be winners and losers? Will there be trade or business in heaven? Will there be technology? You know, we're going to answer these questions as we go through it because I think all the theological buildup that you guys have been so patient to sit through through three and a half weeks and we're finally getting to now are so that we could open up our minds and expand them enough that we might be able to answer these questions without everybody freaking out and saying, there's no way there'll be laughter in heaven. Or other people saying, of course there'll be laughter in heaven. But think about it. Isn't most humor really an attempt to make fun of something? And can you really make fun of other people or other situations in heaven without sinning? What are we going to laugh about? Is it just going to be like puns all the time? <laughs> like what kind of humor will it be if it's Christian humor? You know, is it going to be like Abbott and Costello humor where just the guy hits him and the guy just keeps turning the other cheek over and over and over and over and we just think that's funny? You know, what kind of humor is it? 
all right? And if you think about these things, they're going to evoke a lot of questions, probably more that are even on these sheets. And some of them are deeper than others. Some of you may not care if we drink coffee, but others might really care about will we be tempted in heaven? Will we have free will? Will we be robots? Can you somehow accidentally sin and just like, gone? You're like, you just sucked out? You're like, oop. We're going to go through these, and that's why I'm encouraging you guys. You guys have made it this far through this series. It's been mind-bending. It's been tough. But the good stuff, the good stuff is coming because we're really going to now get into things that I think excite me when I think, that's cool. I'd like to know. The caveat, of course, of we've got to make some speculative leaps about some of these things. But I think based on the foundation of text straight from Scripture that we've used, based on our own common sense, based on what the Spirit is going to reveal to us, and based on the foundations, like I said, of theology of heaven that we've covered, we're going to be able to make some of these leaps pretty easily and understand them. And some are going to be more subject to debate. That's okay. It's not here to present doctrine. I guess the whole reason we did this series in the first place is so that we could together look forward to heaven and realize it's not a big sing-along in the sky forever, 24 hours a day. You know, yes, it's going to be 24 hours of worship, but we worship God in other ways than just the ways you're thinking about the definition of worship. We might worship Him when we're reading books, if there are books. We might worship Him when we're working, if there is work. Okay? We might worship Him when we're doing the things He assigns us to do, even ruling, okay? even living in the houses that we have, even hanging out at those big feasts, eating all day long. You know, That's where you'll find me. You know, well, that's where I'm hanging out. But it's a glorious future. And it's been assured, 100%, guaranteed, you get it. Just for accepting Jesus Christ. You know, that's what he wants us to have. Lord Jesus, I'm so excited that this is our future. Even without knowing the answers to some of these things, and even though I know that the answers might even surprise some of us in here tonight, what you've laid for us, you've promised us, is beyond our wildest imagination. Forgive us, Lord, just that we're even trying to imagine it. But Lord, you commanded us to seek heaven, and that's what we're doing in this series. To boldly imagine what it might be like to be in your presence. And yes, Lord, we know it's going to be beyond even what we can imagine. And we might even get a couple things wrong, but in the end, Lord, what we're doing to honor you is to know something about the home that you've laid for us in eternity so that we could stop focusing so much on this world and focus on the next one, so that we know that our salvation will lead us into such a glorious place, Lord, that we need not be afraid of heaven, we need not dread it, we need not worry that it's going to be boring. We just know that being in your presence is going to be fantastic, and the things you've prepared for us just show how much you love us. Lord, you could have made it a place where all we did was worship you just night and day, and that would have been enough, Lord, but you actually went further and know what's in the desires of each of our hearts, and you're building that for us now. You as the carpenter are building for us the type of heaven that was going to just keep our wonder for an eternity and keep our thanksgiving and our praise coming out of our mouth for the place that you've built for us as our eternal home. Thank you, Jesus, that you've built this place for us, and thank you, Jesus, that you even built the bridge so that we can come home to you, that you laid your life on the cross for us. And I pray, Lord, for anybody in this room tonight who is still trying to find you through that path, Lord, who still wants to accept that salvation, I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would come into their heart tonight and, and start to do the work that's necessary, Lord, for them to realize your saving grace and what you did and the choice you made to lay down your life so that that person could have become perfect again and enter the heavenly gates. We praise you, Jesus, in your precious name.
Amen.